Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us here. We are a team from Bedford. Um, Bedford is actually a place, if you don't know it, there it's several hours south. Um, some people still call Bedford the North, though. Are they right? No, they, they didn't think so. It's just the boring middle, isn't it? Yeah. But the good news is, in 10 years' time, it will be a coastal town because of global warming. So the pro house prices will go up. That's the good news. No, seriously, really, really, thank you so much for having us here. I love this church, and we as a team love this church. We were having breakfast together this morning and just boasting about what God is doing in here. And what a bunch of hungry people for the presence of God you are. If you are visiting here this morning, you know, I don't know if you've noticed it, but here is a bunch of people really passionate about a person, Jesus Christ, that we believe is alive. And we are so welcome here. You are so welcome here just discovering more about what Christianity is about. And if you have any questions, you can go and find Alan, not me. <laughs> so, um, we, I'm going to talk uh, in a moment about what I wanted to share this morning, but I just want to share just a couple of stories that have been happening and that I, what I've been hearing about. So, a team uh, from King's Arms, from where the church where we are based, went to France a couple of weeks ago. And one of the stories they came back with is uh, a girl that had ovarian cancer. They had prayed for the year previously that that was there again, and she had been completely and utterly healed. No cancer left at all into her body, which is amazing, isn't it? So there was another, another lady in France she got prayed for because she had a herniated disc in her a herniated disc, and in the first session of the conference, she got prayed for, and she could move like she had never moved before with that herniated disc. So she got completely healed as well. Just really, really good news. Again, story after story after story we are hearing about in this nation, in Europe, that God is on the move and that He is doing phenomenal things. And we've got doctors' reports of medical healings. Doctors don't know what to do with themselves because they suddenly are having to tell people, well, you had something that couldn't be cured and now it's cured. And we don't know what is going on. So it's really just wonderful to see that Jesus is increasing his kingdom all over the place. And I'm really excited about that. If you are excited, you feel free to shout amen or yes or uh, I'm happy to be here and Jesus is alive and you can just shout all of those things. Um, I'm very happy with that. Let's get a little bit of Pentecostal in it. I kind of like the Pentecostal, so uh, let's do that a little bit. And also, one of the things I just wanted to give time for is just get to Dom just to share a bit of his story, because God has also done wonderful things in his life. So, can we just welcome up Dom, and he can share a little bit. Thanks. Um, so, so, about a year ago, I was running a business, and it was in a bit of difficulty, and it had been quite a toxic place for me for a few years, and... I ended up, to cut a long story short, walking into a GP surgery, then immediately signing me off work for two months and having time out. And that then set off a chain of events that meant that um, the business went under. And in that context, I uh, lost £100,000, and um, it was a really tricky season. And, but I had a choice in that. 
And that was the interesting thing for me. I knew that God was doing something, and I had a choice. So I had a choice. Do I, do I partner with the arrows of the enemy, or do I partner with Christ in me, the hope of glory? Yeah. And so for me, I was like, too often in the past, I've partnered with the arrows of the enemy and given him authority. But I knew now that I needed to partner with Christ in me, the hope of glory, to allow him to minister to me, heal me, and see the change that I've, that I've been on. And it's been amazing to see how God has really rescued me from a trap and set me in a new position. And what's been just phenomenal to see is how God has helped me to live a journey of hope again. Yeah. And I guess I just wanted to share that this morning, that, mm. that we can choose to partner with Christ in us, the hope of glory, and go on journeys of hope. Yeah. Thank you, Dom. just want to commend Dom to you. He's absolutely a phenomenal man, and he has lived what it looks like to go through Dark Night of the Soul. And I, I personally think that every single person goes at least once in their life through a moment like that. I've been through that as well, and I know many people here in the room have gone through that, or maybe even in that right now. And to hold on to the hope of Jesus Christ is really possible in a season like that, and Dom has modelled that in his own life through the grace of Jesus. So if you are struggling with that particularly, I would really uh, recommend just coming to Dom at the end of the service, and I'm sure he would love to pray for you. Okay, so we are going to go to 1 Kings... And it will appear on the screen as well, but we're going to go to 1 Kings 16 and at the end and 17 as well. (coughs) So, um, when I was a child, um, when I was still living in the Netherlands where I grew up, my parents, every single year, would take me to the open day of the theological university of our denomination, the Dutch Reformed Church, on the equivalent of the bank holiday in the UK. So every single year, they would all put us in the car as a family and that we would go to the theological university to hear lectures and to hear all kinds of information about the university and what was happening in Christianity in the Netherlands. Forget about Alton Towers or Disneyland. My family took me to a university. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) And I still remember one day we were walking past one of the lecture halls, and on the placket it said, Professor so-and-so, Professor of Old Testament Studies. And I turned to my parents and I said, that must be the most boring person alive on this planet. (laughs) And quickly walked past that lecture hall. But you know what, I've grown up since then a little bit, and I've realized actually, what beauty there is in the Old Testament. What the amazing story of God that is developing through the Scriptures, through the Bible, and that God didn't change His mind from one part of the Bible to another. It's the same God. And through the whole story of hundreds of years of history, God is revealing Himself as a pursuer of humanity. And He's revealing Himself as an incredible giver of grace again and again and again. So, This morning, we're going to look at an Old Testament character, and that's the person of Elijah. And we are going to really find some of the characteristics of our wonderful, wonderful God in there. I believe it. But before, I'm going to read just a little bit of context. Because where we are reading in 1 Kings 
16 and 17, we are around the biblical story of 874 BC. So that will be up here on the screen, those dates. 874 BC, before Christ, just a couple of days ago. 200 years before that, in 1046 BC, the Israelites as a nation basically said to God that they wanted an earthly king like the pagan nations around them. It would be normal for the pagan nations in that time to have a monarchy. But Israel did not have a monarchy apart from God being their king. And God said, that is enough. You do not need an earthly king because I am your protector. I am your provider. But here is the amazing thing about God, that while he knew it would be a bad idea to have an earthly king, he still granted him, still granted the nation of Israel an earthly king, knowing that that would not be a good idea. And so that's where we have 200 years later, 874 BC, we are introduced to one of those kings, and that is King Ahab. So obviously we know that the first king will be King Saul, And then you have his son, King David. Then you have Solomon. Then after Solomon, you have King... Oh, here's the test of you. (laughs) Rehoboam. Rehoboam. So we have King Rehoboam. (laughs) Sorry, I just like doing that. Um, King Rehoboam. With King Rehoboam, actually, it goes wrong. So, with King Rehoboam, in that time, the nation of Israel, a one nation, splits into two parts. As you can see on the map behind me, it becomes what the theologians call a divided kingdom. So, you have in the north, you have Israel with the capital of Samaria. So, that's in the north. And in the south, you have Judah with the capital of Jerusalem. So when you read in your Bibles through 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles and a lot of the prophets, actually they prophesy often to one or the other in, uh, in the Scriptures. So either to Israel or to Judah. And so often when the prophets talk about uh, maybe a judgment for Israel, it's often talking to the northern part, not necessarily the whole part. Now, Judah in the south has got the privilege to have a couple of kings that are okay, that are reasonable enough. They kind of follow God, they maybe follow God partly, or they do a reasonable job. But the north in Israel has, after the divided kingdom, zero good kings. None at all. Can you imagine having hundreds of years of bad government in the nation? That is... Hundreds of years. (laughs) Oh, sorry about that. Anyway, much worse than we have here. Um, So that's where we arrive at King Ahab. And the scriptures say that King Ahab was the worst of them all. Was the most evil king in the history of the northern part of Israel. So that's where we read in chapter 16, verse 29. And it will appear on the screen. In the 38th year of Azak, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, so the northern part. And he reigned in the capital, Samaria, over Israel 22 years. 
Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, Sebu, daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and began to serve Baal as a foreign god and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pool, which is a fertility god, and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than the Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> it's going into the memory books, isn't it? <laughs> so, here we go. Still with me? Good. Um, so, 17 verse 1. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives whom I serve. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the, Lord of, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the calf, I always pronounce it wrong, ravine, yes, east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you there with food. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And then we're going to look specifically at the verse, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So, about ten years ago, I had an encounter with God, a really powerful encounter with God when I was still in the Netherlands, and one of the things that God said to me in that encounter, he said, Marco, I want you to move from the place that you were born and raised in and get, move away to get trained for the kingdom of God. So after researching for a while and discovering some options, I had the option to go to Dubai, to Sydney, to London and to Bedford. <laughs> to do a gap year. I ended up in Bedford. Only God could have done that. You know what? Bedford is on the scale on the world map, an absolutely insignificant place. If I'm abroad, I always say I'm from London, just to make things easier. You know what? It is not significant necessarily in the world's eyes. And I love how God is introducing Elijah in this moment. There is no backstory like a good novel where every characteristic of this person is explained. None whatsoever. Elijah is introduced here. And it says this to introduce him. Elijah is from Tishbe, from the area of Gilead. Now here's the thing about Tishbe. It is a nothing place. It is so nothing, it is so insignificant, there is no archaeological evidence about it whatsoever. There is no history. They kind of knew where the area of Gilead was, but there is no information about Tishbe at all. But here's what I love, that one of the main prophets in the Scriptures comes from a place of nothing, but it doesn't 
make him significant, what makes him significant is that he serves God. Whatever your background is, where you come from, whether you are clever or not clever, whether you are educated or not educated, whether you are very good with your words or not very good with your words, whether you feel full of fear or not full of fear, all of those things don't create your significance or insignificance. This is what makes you significant. The next thing, the first thing that comes out of Elijah's mouth, and it is this. If I can find it. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. As the Lord, the God of Israel, is alive. And then here is the next bit. Whom I serve. Whom I serve. This is where your significance comes from. It doesn't come from your background. It doesn't come from your education. It doesn't come from your class. It comes from this. The Lord God is alive and I will serve Him. I will serve Him. Whether you had a chunky inheritance to buy your first house or whether you spent your 20s down on the street, homeless on the street, it is irrelevant in the kingdom of God. You are qualified because God chooses you. Thank you. <laughs> so, that is what happens. And then straight after Elijah's introduction to his ministry, which is one Bible verse, one Bible verse that he somehow rocks up at the king's palace and stands in the authority that God has given him. And for one verse, he prophesies a drought. And then immediately, God sends him to hiding. Immediately, God is saying, well done, now go into hiding for several years and hide away. See, God is getting Elijah ready for a showdown on Mount Carmel in a couple of chapters later with 950 pagan prophets. But in order for him to get ready for that, God is going to give him a training camp, a training course. So many of us have tasted our calling in God. So many of us in this room have had that moment where you thought, that's what I am alive for. Whether you prophesied over someone, maybe you saw someone healed, or someone came to Jesus, or you had a promotion at your job, or favor somewhere else, and you have thought, that is what I'm alive for. And it feels like suddenly it's all gone again, and you're in a place of hiddenness. And you have thought that that was punishment from God, but it wasn't punishment, because God wants to get you ready so that you have faith to pray for the rain in the next couple of chapters. To pray for the rain on the altar and to, for the fire to come down. Fire come down on the altar and rain to come back into the land. That's what he wants to create faithful. And, but that often happens in the hidden place, in the insignificant place. You can see in the next couple of weeks that God, or not couple of weeks, couple of chapters, this was a series. I'm only doing one message of the series. Um, through different circumstances, God is teaching Elijah to partner with him. Abundance in the story of the widow of Seraphat, multiplication, raising of the widow's son, and then, you see, moment after moment, God is actually teaching different things to Elijah. 
so many of us actually found ourselves in a detour of life. How many of you expected to be where you are right now? I didn't. I never thought I would move abroad at all. I found myself in a detour of life. But you know what? We can find God in a detour. We can find God in a detour. And so much of what you receive in that moment is dependent on your attitude. It's so much on your position towards God. You can either keep grumbling and not receive what God's got for you in that season or you can receive in the painful moments, in the hidden moments and saying, God, what are you teaching me? Because the wrong question to ask in the moment of hiddenness is why or why not? But the right question is to ask, God, what are you revealing to me? And that's exactly what Elijah did and what God wanted him to do is for him to be, have a posture of receiving and growth and discipleship and pruning and all of those things to give him faith. So when God sends Elijah into hiding and he sends the ravens, it's not just about physical provision. It is about a revelation what God is like and what, is God, what God is teaching in Elijah in something else. And this is this, and that's this, that God gives of himself always. Whether you are in seasons of hiding or promotion, or whether you have scarcity or abundance, whether you are in health or in pain, in peace or in conflict, God is the one every single morning sets the table of grace for every single one of us. Every single morning that Elijah wakes up in the hidden place, God in His beautiful mercies has already set the breakfast table. The ravens have arrived again to bring in bread and meat in the morning. Breakfast is served and Elijah didn't have to do anything. The only thing he had to do is feast. Feast on the goodness of God. <coughs> Excuse me. I can imagine at a day, maybe day, 345. Day 345, Elijah wakes up and the ravens are there again. Every single person, every single day, the ravens were there. There was never a day that they missed out. That God said, today, can't be bothered, I'm a bit upset with you. I'm not going to give it to you. And I can imagine the revelation that Elijah gets in that moment, God will always show up. Every single day, God will always show up. <coughs> because he is faithful. He's faithful with his own presence. He's faithful being a provider. He's faithful being a protector. See, God didn't just want to provide physically for Elijah. He wanted to show him what he was like. What he was like that in a season of droughts, when the little brook that he's drinking of is diminishing every single day, because there's a drought in the land. So the brook, that's why eventually Elijah has to move away from there. The brook is more and more empty, but he sees the ravens. So he's getting a revelation of the goodness of God. Are you at today 345? Because this might be your day where you get this revelation 
that God will just never give up on me. So when you know that He's not going to give up on you, you will have faith to pray for rain the next day. See, every evening the ravens came as well. So I can remember, I can never remember, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine, not remember, not that old. I can imagine that every single evening, afternoon, that Elijah is going on his afternoon stroll and there's nothing else to do, so that's what you do. And then go on this afternoon stroll and the, there is no clouds on the horizon, it's a clear sky, and then in the distance he sees this speck on the horizon and the flock of birds are arriving again. And he will know God has showed up again. You know what? In a couple of chapters later, you remember that story when Elijah sends his servants away to check for the clouds when he's prayed for the rain? Seven times he says to his servants, go and check for the rain because I know it's coming. Why did he know that the rain was coming? Why did he have faith for the rain to come? I think it is because he knew the ravens arrived. Every single evening he looked on the horizon said, there they are. So he had faith to send his servant to say, you look because there will be a speck on the clouds and as soon as the speck on the cloud arrives, you will have proof that God is faithful again, that he is the one that answers prayer. That he is the one that answers prayer. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, Marco, how do you know that your depression is not going to come back? And then I thought to myself, because for 10 years, the ravens arrived every single morning I woke up. Every single morning, they arrived. And for me personally, it's not everyone's story, but I celebrate what God has done with me. For me personally, this faith that I have that Jesus Christ is alive is the same faith every morning that I know that my depression will never, ever come back. Ever come back. So he's just stretching your faith muscles and God is setting the table for you, for you to feast on his goodness. Here's what love really is about, that God eternally gives of himself. See, this is why I love the stories of the Old Testament. Not just because they're inspiring stories or great historical narratives, but because this is the truth of God being revealed through the pages of history, that He is a pursuer of humanity, that God never gives up in giving of Himself, and He never runs out of the mercies that He wants to give to His people. I just love that about the Scriptures, that you will find again and again and again that humanity rejects God, and God says, ouch, and still loves them and still loves them. And he says, I will never divorce my people. And obviously that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ, where God's saying, I still have not given up on you, my people. After hundreds of years of you rejecting me, I will not reject you. I will not reject you. How many of us have had uh, problems with people rejecting us. I think every single person at some point gets rejected in their lives by other people. You know that pain, that fear that comes with it, the fear of rejection. God had so much more rejection 
both God in the Scriptures in Old Testament and on the cross. The amount of rejection that was poured on Jesus in that moment. And he still says, it's worth it. It's still worth it. Because I love them. Forgive them, Lord. Because they do not know what they're doing. Constantly God is giving. Constantly God is giving. And through Jesus Christ, we finally can say yes to his acceptance. Finally, because through sin, even if we wanted to, Scripture says that the people of God often said to God, yes, we want to accept what you've got for us, but they couldn't. They literally couldn't because of the power of sin in their lives. And Jesus defeated the power of sin and death and fear so that we finally can say yes to the embrace of our Father, which is such good news that we actually have the ability through the Holy Spirit to say yes to His extraordinary love. So every single morning that you wake up, He is ready to reveal Himself to you. His presence is with you. And if you read the, script, the pages of the Bible, you read His words and you will get His thoughts. And His thoughts of you are, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm for you and I'm not against you. And I love this morning in the prayer meeting, someone quoting Psalm 23, that I will set the table of grace for you in the presence of of all my enemies. So every morning that you wake up, it is irrelevant what circumstances you are in because the table of grace is set again. The table of mercy is set again. You know what? All your enemies are forced to watch you feasting on God's goodness. Every morning, even if you have to do it physically, you put a chair down for God and you put a chair down for the devil and you say, devil, sit down. And you go, eat on the goodness of God and you say, devil, you watch. And you just enjoy God's goodness. And you say, no matter what kind of things you are throwing at me, whether it's sickness, whether it's lies, whether it's family problems, whether it's marriage trouble, I'm starting this morning with feasting on God's goodness because no matter what my circumstances are, God is still good. God is still good. And He's setting the table of grace in the presence of my enemies. And your enemy is only forced to watch you. Enjoy God's goodness. Enjoy God's goodness. This is what a banker in London says, Ken Costa. We will never run out of grace or mercy. We will always be able to withdraw from the accounts that were settled by Christ on our behalf. Love that. See, sometimes in our Christian walks, our fire, our passion for God grows dim and it flickers a little bit but you know what his fire for you has not even flickered once he's never doubted his love for you his pursuit of you and as long as you have breath in your lungs you can say yes to him you can say yes to the embrace of the father and come to the table of grace this is why we celebrate communion. It is the last thing it is supposed to be is this solemn and boring moment in church life because we're all to come to the table and feast and remember the goodness of God in our lives. 
So I really want to encourage you in your groups, in your small groups, in your families, to make sure that you take time, not just to feast on the food, but feast on the goodness of God. Because food is a remembrance moment of God as an amazing provider, an amazing protector, and He creates a wonderful family of God for us. See, we put our king's arms every year. We put on a Christmas banquet and we invite the elderly in our town. Um, just basically, all the people of our church can invite one or two people to come to this banquet. And we put this massive banquet on for free for elderly people. And you know what? It's one of the most profound kingdom things that we've done in the last king, a couple of years. I, I totally believe it. We have story after story after story of people saying, I've been looking forward to this for months. We had one lady saying it was the first time they got out of the house that year. Or for several months at least. And again and again, people are so thankful as we put a feast for them. Because this is what the heart of generosity is like. When we are being generous to people, what we are doing is acting like image bearers. Because anytime we are generous, if you're only generous to people that you like, you're missing the point of generosity. You ought to be generous to especially people that you rub against. I used to, what I used to do, people that I either was jealous of or I slightly judged, I would give them financial gifts anonymously. Because I know when I do that, something breaks in my heart because my heart follows my finances. So as soon as I did that, I just like something breaks because what is happening spiritually, you're acting like your creator. Because your creator is the extraordinary giver. An extraordinary giver. He does it all the time. He did it through Jesus. He did it through every page of the Bible. He's revealing himself as an incredible giver. So I just want to encourage you that. Actually, you are phenomenal with that already. That there is a real spirit of generosity in this church. And I just want to encourage you that you're acting like your creator when you do that. So we have families at King's Arms. They go on, uh, on uh, what is it called, drop in one. So, sorry? Knock, no, not knock and run, drop and run. So, or something like that. So, basically, what they have, they get it like they, as a family, they pray for a particular family or for a particular person. They put some money in an envelope. And then as a family, they all, all the kids, they go to someone that they want to bless and they put um, money through the door and then they run off so that they can't be seen. And I just love that because that's what the family of God does. It is, we, we just are extraordinarily generous to each other and to people that are in need as well. So, to finish, right here. See, the Bible says that if you want to know what the Father is like, just look at Jesus. Because he's the visible image of the invisible God. And Jesus, through his life, not only in his death and resurrection, but through his life, models what the Father is like all the time. In Luke 7, the Pharisees, and we'll be on the screen, the Pharisees, they accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Glutton being like an indulgent eater and a drunkard. What was the point? Jesus is actually modeling abundance in the kingdom of God, that there is more than enough. Jesus tells the parable of inviting people to the wedding banquet. What is the point? There is enough for everyone. When Jesus multiplies the food, there are loads of leftovers. What is the point? I will not send anyone home 
empty-handed. There is more than enough. Here's what Jesus says. The thief, he comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come to create life abundantly. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me because there is enough. And from you will flow rivers of living water. The prodigal son gets given half of the estate. There is more than enough and there is an inheritance for you. A king forgiving a debt of thousands of talents. Jesus turning water into wine. And then in Luke 12, it says this, Look at the ravens. Here's the ravens again. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable than any of the birds. Here's what Andrew Wilson says. Everything Jesus gives, gives to the crowd who follow him, good news, sight, speech, ritual cleanliness, hearing, bread, teaching, peace, social inclusion, forgiveness, table fellowship, life, is in some way a precursor to his gift of himself, of his own accord, as a ransom for many. And here is what I want to leave to you. It's easy to do a message on ravens just about physical provision or money. But what I wanted to show you is that God, through the pages of Scripture, reveals himself as a giver of himself. He is always ready to reveal his character, his nature to you. And I believe that in this season, in this church, he is growing you. He's growing this church in the knowledge of God. This is what Paul prays to the Colossians. He says, I pray this, that you may grow in the knowledge of God. And I believe that you're going to grow in the knowledge of God this year. And you're going to be filled with awe. I believe there is a season of awe coming again. And all coming again. Not just sitting on a chair, forgetting about every Sunday, but actually deep, deep knowledge of what God is like and being overwhelmed with His greatness and His goodness and His gifts to us as His church and as His people. So that's what I want to share. So why don't we stand and then we're going to pray.